0: So good morning, everybody. I told you last week that I can't swim, right? Remember that? And then through some sort of radical rhetorical device that I came up with, I connected that fact that I can't swim to the project in Rio Azul. Now, for those of you who don't know, we've partnered with a village in Rio Azul, or Guatemala called Rio Azul. And basically we were there to help them get rid of the parasites that were in their water that were robbing their bodies of food. We want them to get back on their feet again. And we're going to give you some more information on that on February 10th. So everyone who's very conscious about the calendar, February 10th, right in your calendar, that's the time that the team from Roosevelt is going to come back and give us an update on what happened. So, so far, have you been following the blog? you been following the blog? Yeah, already we're going to see stuff going on, they're starting to look for a new village, they were there, I think yesterday, they walked down to a new village to see how it was going. So there's some interesting stuff going on there. but. You may have noticed, we actually stopped calling it Project Rio Zul, And and we stopped calling it Project Water, which kind of is too bad, because I really like that name, you know? Friends Church, were all about water, taking water, so them needing healthy, clean water seemed really a good thing. But we started calling it Project Guatemala, and there's a reason for it. And this is where my swimming metaphor came in last week. You see, I decided I wanted to do a, a triathlon this year. And I realized that to do a triathlon, you have to be able to run, bike, and swim. And I don't swim well. This body doesn't float. It just kind of sinks. So you know, like, swimmers are like this. This is Vince. It's kind of pathetic, actually. But when a buddy encouraged me, a friend of mine came down to me and said, Hey, Vince, no, no, you can do it. Come on. It'll be fine. Just go. You'll swim a couple times, and you'll be fine. You'll be swimming like a champ in no time. To which I was going guy's an Ironman triathlete. I think it's fair to say that he swims more in his warm-up than probably everyone in this room swims in a year. So when he tells me I can swim, I'm thinking, you have no bloody clue what you're talking about, buddy. And that's the problem. In Rio Zul. when us, first world people who throw away more things than most third world people have, when we go down to them and say, you can get out of poverty, you can do this, they look at it, us like I looked at my triathlete buddy and just go, whatever. You have no clue. But That's the interesting thing. Right now, there's something changing going on in Guatemala. If you saw the blog, you actually saw the most recent post. A town about a half-hour drive and a 40-minute walk away from Rio Azul has heard about Rio Azul. They've heard about what's going on in Rio Azul. They're starting to go, wait a second. If Rio Azul can do this... If Rio Azul's kids can grow bigger, can be stronger, maybe we could do that too. So you see the problem with calling it Project Rio Azul? We're not just impacting Rio Azul anymore. We're impacting Rio Azul, which is impacting the areas around it, the towns next to it, the towns hours away from it. And so we decided to capture the, the uh, extent of what we're doing there. We need to change the name. So we started calling it Project Guatemala. And how cool is that? That we're having so much impact that our original vision was too small. Now we have to make it bigger so we can capture all that we're doing there. Isn't that something that's to be proud of as a community? I'm absolutely impressed by what we've done there and the impact that the real people have done to people around them. So, remember, February 10th, the team's going to come back, tell us everything that's going on, all the impact that's been done for Project Guatemala. Thanks. Jeff always gets really uncomfortable if it's quiet like this after that trailer. He thinks you're all horribly offended by what we said. <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? When you look at a backstory behind something, kind of goes, okay, I can see where that's coming from. So before I get going, two things I want to say. First, next week, Jeff, talking about sexuality. If you ever want to see Jeff squirm, <laughs> you will love that one. <laughs> Second piece, today, we're talking about homosexuality, and we're talking about it openly and honestly, which is kind of my style. So, if you have young kids in the service, just note that this is probably PG-13. So, uh, you probably are a better judge of whether or not your child can handle some of the stuff we're going to talk about, but I just want to give you a heads up before we go in. So, I seem to be a bit of a sucker for punishment. I get some sort of sick enjoyment out of dealing with these super touchy subjects, and I don't... Three weeks ago, I was thinking, yeah, this would be a great thing to talk about. Two days ago, I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> and normally, I create a message that's kind of like one whole piece that kind of starts here, and sometimes I'll kind of wrap it, but I always wanted to wrap it at the end, so that it all comes together at the end. You go, okay, I know what Vince is saying. But today, I'm going to do it different. Today, I'm going to do a little bit of the message, stop that part, and then I'm going to do the next part of the message, okay? So let me start with the First. I was sitting in the library last week. When I say library, I mean when you walk out this way towards the parents' of kids' room, there's a library right there. I was sitting in there having a meeting. It was with April, our office manager. And I realized something. I had this profound, not just like, but a profound like body realization that we're not in Kansas anymore, or at least I wasn't. You know those feelings when you're like, this isn't quite what I expected. Because you see... A few minutes ago or before that, I had come up the stairs. And normally this area over here during the week, dead, no one around. But now there was basically a party going on. There's people everywhere, they were chatting, they had decorations up, food everywhere. It was like, oh yeah, people were having a great time, you know, like, you know when they're being formal at a funeral, you're like, "Mm, sorry for your loss. This is like people like high-fiving each other, telling jokes. It was like, it was a great time, everyone looked like they were having fun. I thought, oh, they're probably having a bar mitzvah or something like that, you know, a little party seems like an odd day, but what do I know about these things? And as I sat there in that library right over there, trying to concentrate, I asked April, our office manager, so what's going on today? She says, oh, they're having a breast. I was like, what's a breast? She's like, oh, it's a ritual circumcision of an eight-day-old baby boy. in the room right next to me, like 10 feet away from me, there's a chat like... I went from, what are we going to talk about in April today? To being like, oh, sweet mother. It was, like... it was like... And every time I'd hear a baby cry, I'd be like, was that it? Was that it? And was like, no. That was like a two-year-old who was angry. I'm like, oh, okay. 2 year like, oh, was that it? No, that was like a toddler. What are you even talking about? Next to me, there's an eight-day-old boy getting his fork skin cut off, and they were having a party. I realized something very profound in that moment. I am not Jewish. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Oh, my goodness. So, let me ask, what's the big deal? I'm not Jewish. We all know that. In the Bible, if I'm not Jewish, I'm what's called a Gentile. So, remember, if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. If you're not Jewish, everyone else is Gentile. So let me ask, how many Gentiles do we have here today? Do we have any Jewish people? So, every Gentile, all you people put up your hand, right? Here's the problem. There's nothing wrong with being Gentile, except when you read these words by Jesus. Jesus says this, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Translation, I only came for the Jews. So according to that verse, how many people here did Jesus come for? See the problem? If we take Jesus' words literally, and we apply them to this place in time, then we're all excluded. Every one of us is out. That's why we here at Friends Church take the Bible a little bit differently. <clears throat> we say the Bible is God's stories of interaction with humanity. It's not written to us in this time and place. It's not focused on us. If we took it literally and applied it to our lives, we Gentiles would all be screwed. If we took the, what the Bible says literally and applied it to this time and place on the topic of homosexuality, see the problem? So my thoughts are this. If we exclude anyone from the connection with God based on a text in the Bible, we all need to be excluded because we're all Gentiles. So let me be clear here. We here at Friend Church, and me personally, don't take text from the Bible and apply them directly to this time and place today. Because if we do that for one text, I think we need to do it for all. So today we're not going to spend any more time talking about if our homosexual brothers and sisters should be here in this church, in this spiritual tradition. Because the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Gay people are as welcome as straight people here at Friends Church, unequivocally. In fact, we say we don't really care about your sexual orientation. We don't care about your gender. We don't care about your race. We don't care about your background. We don't care about your present situation. We don't care about your religious background. We don't even care about your religious um, ideology right now. All we care about is if you want to engage in what friendship Church is about—connecting with God and making this world a better place. That's what we care about. Make sense? You with me? That's part one. This isn't a discussion about whether or not the Bible says gay and straight people should be here. That's already been dealt with. So a number of years ago the issue of homosexuality became important in my family when with total innocence and by the way, would you talk when I say in total innocence, that's kind of a joke, because I always do stupid things when I say in total innocence. I call up my aunt, my mom's identical twin sister and ask her what I thought was an innocent question. Called her up and said, hey, Mel, how's it going? Good? We still on for supper tomorrow? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Mel, can I ask you a question? She says, yeah, sure. Are you gay? (laughs) Me, innocent questions, you see the... Long pause, long pause. You see, my Aunt Mel had a new roommate that she'd introduced to us as her partner. And this was before partner meant partner. And so I was thinking, that's odd. And I was saying to my sister, that's odd. Why would you call her her partner? My sister said, oh yeah, I saw her slap her in the butt in the kitchen during supper. (laughs) My brain, you know, the gerbils are like, wait a second. I was like, could Mel be gay? You know, it's, it's not something you think about when you grow up with your aunt. You never think about these kind of questions. So being the open and honest and innocent guy I am, I call her up, Mill, can I ask you a question? Sure, are you gay? Long pause. She says, uh, yep. So that's cool. What do you want us to bring for supper tomorrow? And for me, that's all it was. I now knew the pronoun to use when I talked about her partner. My life went on, no big deal. But my conservative Mennonite Christian family didn't. As you may have guessed, this was a big deal. And for years after, I would argue with my grandmother over if homosexuality was right or wrong. We'd quote verses at each other and go back and forth and on and on and on. Today I want to explore some of the verses that me and my grandmother talked about. Because homosexuality is not something out there, something away from us, it's not like this community is straight and gay people live over there. It's right here, right now. You know when your child comes to you and says, hey, I'm gay. You know when you realize you're gay? When a close friend comes and introduces you to their same-sex partner. Someone happens when you realize that the feelings you had for a same-sex friend of yours are more than just friendship feelings. So I'm willing to bet unless you live in a commune someplace, homosexuality is part of your life. And even if you live in a commune, probably. <laughs> Sorry, that's my phone. So we here at Friend Church are people who value the Bible greatly. Shouldn't we figure out what it says about this issue? Shouldn't we know how to respond? Shouldn't we need to know if it's right or wrong? That's what I want to explore today. I don't have time to hit everything that it says, so I'm going to kind of hit the big texts, the most relevant ones to the era of Paul that this series is about. So I'm going to start with this. I want to start with one of the most famous moments in the homosexual discussion. It's a story from the Bible from before the New Testament but it's still quoted regularly in the New Testament. It's the story of Sodom. Now, the story of Sodom starts with the main character, Lot. This is Abraham's nephew. And Lot's sitting in the town square on a nice warm day with all the other people in his community. But he's not like, you know when you sit in a circle? There's a circle, and Lot's like outside of the circle. I'm not saying that they have completely shunned him, but... He's definitely not part of the inner circle. So they're all talking business, and he's kind of watching what they're talking about. And as they're talking, he's kind of getting bored, so he kind of like... He looks out the front gate, and he realizes there's some shadows. Kind of The sun's really low, and you can see some shadows. He's like, Whoa. He's got nothing better to do. They don't have, like, iPhones. They can't just go and surf the web. So he's like... And he realizes the shadows are coming really quick towards him, and then after a few seconds, he realizes the shadows are actually two people within a very short period of time, there's two strangers standing inside the gate of the city of Sodom. So, normally what would happen in this moment is when someone new comes into your town, somebody would get up and welcome them, would invite them to their home, would invite them to stay with them, because there's no Hiltons in this day and age. You can't just go to the hotel. And sleeping in the middle of a city out underneath the stars not super safe. It's not super safe now and it wasn't super safe back then. And so Lot's sitting there kind of like looking at the strangers, looking at the people, going, like, is anyone going to... It's not appropriate for him, kind of the lowest of the low, to go and talk to him. So he's kind of waiting for them to do it. But it's getting like uncomfortably long, we'll say. Finally, Lot's kind of view of hospitality says, okay, I can't take this anymore. Like. I got to talk to them. So Locke goes over to them and he says to them, he says, you know, welcome to Sodom. I'd like you to come to my house and have dinner with me. And the kind of the guys are kind of like, nah, we're good, whatever. We'll just sleep in the square. And he's going, "No, seriously. Like I think you need to come to my house and stay with me because it's not safe here. Two men alone in the city." He says, please, like, I insist. I won't take no for an answer. Finally, the guys are like, okay, whatever. We'll come to your house. You can feel Lot just like, whew. As he walks them towards his house, the whole eyes of that whole group of people kind of like follow Lot in the stranger's home. But As soon as Lot closes the door to his house, he's like, okay, we're good. So he starts getting them settled, starts making some meals, making some food for them. And all of a sudden he hears a rumbling outside voices not happy some of them are yelling, some of them are yelling his name and finally one voice overpowers them all and says, Lot you piece of trash, we know you're hiding those two aliens in your house hand them over, we want to take care of them because we know they're up to no good we're here to put them in their place Lot's heart falls he'd hoped that the townspeople would see the strangers as no threat to them at all Because he knew what they did to people they felt threatened by. People who the town felt they needed to put in their place. The last stranger they got their hands on didn't make it through the night. The fear and the rage of the men of the town led them to display their power in the most abusive way they could. They took the previous stranger out into the town square They tore off his robes, they dragged him to the ground and they did the most abusive thing that they could conceive of. They raped him over and over and over and over. Men who were not gay, who were not expressing love, raped a stranger in a horrific display of power and dominance. in the, end, the stranger was left broken bleeding to die alone in the center of the city a symbol of what Sodom does to strangers and this is what's in Lot mind, Lot's mind as he gets up and he opens the door and he sneaks through it and closes it quickly behind him so that the, the mob can't see the two strangers and the mob's looking angry so Lot's Opens his hand and says, "Hey, hey, there's nothing for you guys here. This is OK. There's, there's no threat to you." He's just hoping that he can avoid something bad tonight. But the townspeople have none of it. Lots of words fall on deaf ears, and dirty hands grab his robe, trying to pull him out of the way so they can get to the two strangers. He tries to distract them with other sexuality, but the mob, they want none of it. They want to put these strangers in their place. They won't soon forget who's in charge of Sodom. What happens next almost happens in slow motion for Lot. Fragmented images of anger and rage. One person grabs his hair, pulling his head to the side. Another punches him in the stomach, air leaving his lungs. And Lot can feel his legs starting to buckle beneath him. He goes, This is it. If I go down now, I'm dead. And then just as he's about to hit the ground, he feels a strong hand on his shoulders pulling him back, pulling him back into the house. The faces of the angry mob retreat rapidly, their mouths twisted in fury by losing their prey. And then the door of the house closes, blocking them off from view. In a supernatural moment of light, the crowd is struck blind, not able to find their prey anymore. So let me ask you, what was the sin of Sodom? Was it homosexuality? I don't think so. I think this is a story about rape, pure and simple. It's nothing to do with the gender of the perpetrator or the victim. It's a crime of violence done by one group of people to another person. And the problem is, this story has colored how we see homosexuality in the Bible for years. When it's never said that the issue in Sodom was homosexuality. The story is about violent rape done by people not in love, done by people not even attracted to someone of the same gender. I think it was done by a group of men bent on domination, Bent on violence, bent on pain and suffering, bent on communicating that we we are more powerful than you are. I don't think this has anything to do with love. It has everything to do with pain. So is the story of Sodom important for our conversation on homosexuality? In the past we would have said yes, but I honestly don't think it applies at all so let me move to another story so timeline this is the story of Sodom this is Paul's era this is a story that happens kind of right in between them it's a time called classical Greek just before the New Testament time which is called Koine Greek so a couple hundred years earlier but it expresses something that was common in the whole Greek era even into the Greco-Roman era we're all familiar with Greek mythology right you know Zeus lightning bolt (laughs) Aphrodite, Hera all that stuff mount olympus Herc and helena isn't that from the look herk there's helena <laughs> so one of the great myths of zeus we find another example of something that would have been called homosexuality in that day and age but i think we'd call something call it something completely different so i thought i'd recount the myth in this way take a look Zeus seduces an adolescent boy named Ganymede to go up with him up in the Mount Olympus. And this was common, common every day, from right through the class, class, classical Greek era through to the ancient Near East Greco-Roman era. Well, maybe not the eagle whisking people away and all that stuff, but... Older men having serious and often sexual relationships with adolescent boys. What we'd call pedophilia is what the Greco-Roman world would've called homosexuality. The formal name for it is pederasty. It was the sexual relationship between an older man and an adolescent boy. It wasn't illicit. I know for us it's very hard for us to get past this, but in their day and age, this was not immoral, illegal. This wasn't hidden, this wasn't illicit. This was common. This was accepted. Some say the relationships were loving. From my point of view, it's hard to imagine that. It'd be unthinkable for someone in our day and age to call that homosexuality. Yes, the relationship is between two people of the same gender, but the age of the younger overrides that completely. And I want to say again, don't think that the boys were taken against their wills. That ne- wasn't necessarily the case. From what we understand, they often entered into the relationships willingly. They'd receive gifts from their suitors. They'd often have all their education paid for. And then when they became old enough, usually when they be- grew whiskers, the relationship ended and they continued their life in their own way. And my best guess, this is what's going on in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the one that we're talking about today. Paul recounts in classical Greek rhetorical style a list of vices. He says it this way, do you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves, greedy people, drunkard, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So I want us just to focus on those two phrases. Those who are male prostitutes or who practice homosexuality. These are the words in question and these are the main words to communicate homosexuality in the Greek era. And while the first one can be focused on male prostitution, it seems weird. Because male prostitution wasn't common in that era. In fact, female prostitution was extremely common. So why isn't Paul concerned with that? But if we see the first translated word translated that we translate as male prostitute actually means soft. You can talk about, you would use that word to describe soft cloth, but it also means in a sexual connotation, the younger member of a pederastic relationship. Starts to make sense, doesn't it? And the second word, the word that we say practice homosexuality, in the context of pederasty, that's the older member. From our time, from our point of view, we can't see that. We see male prostitution makes sense, homosexuality makes sense. But in their day and age, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think he's talking about the members of a pederastic relationship. When we understand that this was common in the Greco-Roman world, we understand that this could very well be what Paul's referring to. A relationship between a boy and a man. makes sense then that he's not focused on what we would call homosexuality, doesn't it? Interesting side note. Uh, You know the story of the Roman centurion? Have you ever heard that one? Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, would you, I have a slave, a slave that I care about very much, would you heal him? And Jesus does. But think about it through that day and age. An older guy with a slave. Slaves were property. You didn't care about slaves. That's like a couch. Couch doesn't work, throw it out, get a new one. That's how they saw slaves. But the centurion thinks very highly of his slave. Maybe loves his slave. It's interesting, isn't it? When we read the Bible through what's going on in that culture, some of the stories take on a subtle different shift. Okay, so if you're going to talk about New Testament views on homosexuality, this next passage is one that you cannot avoid. It's a passage that conservatives have been using to beat the homosexual community over the head for years. It's what they call the clobber passage. It's from a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And if I pull the reference out of its rhetorical framework, it looks like this. Women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. In it, we probably have the closest reference to what we call homosexuality today in the Bible. Interestingly, it's the only time in the New Testament that women... Uh, homosexuality for women is even addressed so clearly women you're much better off than the men in paul's view and it seems explicit at least from the outside that he's talking that homosexuality is abnormal doesn't it but if you put in the larger rhetorical framework something else starts to emerge eugene peterson the guy who paraphrased the message bible he paraphrases it beautifully so i want to read his account and i'm going to read the whole account People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hand for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stall. So God said in effect, hey, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And it wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God. They worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. And worse followed. Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men. All lust, no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Empty of God and love. Godless and loveless wretches. To me, this passage can be looked at a number of ways. But I think any interpretation lives or dies on the following issue. Who is Paul talking about? Is he talking about a group of gay people? if he happens to be writing this letter to a group of gay people, then this would make sense that he's speaking to them and saying, homosexuality is wrong. But what are the chances of him speaking to a group of gay people in Rome? If he's talking to a group of people who are straight, or even a mixed group of gay and straight people, then something funny has happened. Somehow, these straight people went from being straight to behaving in what we would call a homosexual way. So how do a group of people spontaneously become gay? Kind of doesn't make sense, does it? Unless the act that they're engaging in, the act that we see as homosexuality, had something more to do with what the first part of the story says. They stopped worshipping God and they started to worship something different. And what if that different thing suggested for them somehow that the practice of worshiping this thing involved homosexuality. Not gay people living in loving relationships. I'm talking straight people having sex like gay people. It's interesting, isn't it? It's very easy to say, oh, these are just a bunch of gay people, therefore it's wrong. But when you look at it carefully, the thought of a bunch of straight people becoming gay doesn't really make a ton of sense. So in this passage, if you ask me to interpret it, I would probably say the larger framework colors what I would see the individual pieces being. The problem is, I can't be conclusive. In fact, if you ask me, I could argue each one of the passages I talked about today, pro-gay, anti-gay. Pro-homosexuality, anti-homosexuality. I honestly could. I could go in there and do a detailed study of the word, the co-text, the context. And I think I could do a fairly good defense of either side of the story. And while you might be sitting there thinking, Kay Clawson, just tell me the answer. Please. (laughs) I don't think it works that way. In fact, I would even go further. I think if I did that, it would rob you of something in your spiritual journey. I think it's important for us each to wrestle with these issues for ourselves to figure out which direction we need to go, to get it so it's deep in our heart, not just have someone like me say, okay, here's what it means, go off and live that. We at Friend Church take it very seriously that we think your spirituality and your spiritual journey is unique to you, and so you need to wrestle it out, even if it's more difficult. Remember I started this section discussing my grandmother, the argument we had over homosexuality and my aunt coming out, or let's say me-outing my aunt. (laughs) Sounds so mean when you say it that way, doesn't it? It, Whatever. So after about two years, my grandmother treating my aunt's partner nicely. And nicely. My grandmother is very nice. But not lovingly. For two years, my aunt's partner was accepted in the home, was treated with respect, but not treated with love like my grandma would treat everybody else, all the other in-laws. After two years of my then 80-year-old grandmother wrestling with what she'd been taught about homosexuality, something changed for her. My aunt's partner said she felt it one day. She felt like an outsider. And the next day, she felt just this amazing feeling of love for my grandmother. My conservative, Mennonite, 80-year-old grandmother had made the switch. I don't think my grandmother changed her views on homosexuality was right or wrong. I don't think it was about that at all. When I asked my grandmother what changed, she said this, it's not my business to judge others. It's my business to love them. So that's what I'm gonna do. So today I taught you a bunch of stuff, but I wanna frame everything I taught you today in the words of my grandmother. You may have listened to what I said today and decided that, yes, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. Or you may have heard what I had to say and said, yes, the Bible says homosexuality is no problem. And honestly, here at Friend Church, either option's okay. We won't push you out for either option. But I want you to leave thinking this through the lens of my grandmother's words. I don't think it's our responsibility to judge others. I think it's our responsibility to love them. Those of you who have decided that homosexuality is wrong, can you love the people around you who are gay? I don't mean put up with them. I don't mean treat them nicely like my grandmother did before. I mean love them deeply, truly, without the limits of judgment. Can you do that? for you who've decided homosexuality is right, can you love the people around you who are still judging you for that? Well, it's easy to love people who agree with you. It's even easy for people who keep their mouth shut. I'm talking to people who look at you and say, you are wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. And if you believe in that, can you love those people? the gay members of our community, this is an even more emotional subject for you because your sexual orientation is who you are. If someone rejects that, it feels like they've rejected you. So can you move, move past the hurt, the betrayal, the rejection? Can you move past that and love the people who don't love you? That's the hard one. I think this issue is worth talking about. I think it's worth being educated about. And I hope after today you know more about what the Bible says about homosexuality. I didn't tell you this to give you more ammunition in the fight you have with your friend, Lloyd. We have a mutual friend who we have this argument with regularly, so he knows what I'm talking about. I didn't give you this conversation to have that ammunition. The issue issue of homosexuality in the New Testament, in my humble opinion, is not cut and dry. There is no answer that's conclusive. There's much interpretation that needs to be done. So here's my final thoughts. Is the Bible conclusive for or against homosexuality in the New Testament? I don't think it is. Is the situation complex? That for sure. And are the vast majority of us Gentiles? Yes, we are. So let's not hide from the difficulty of this subject, can we? Because often in uncertainty we find humility. And from humility often comes love. Can we frame this whole conversation like my 80-year-old grandmother did? Can we frame this conversation in love? That's all I have for this week, folks. If you have any questions with me or just want to discuss this, I'll be outside. You can have my email. It's on the bottom of the program. Someone said I should put an autoresponder. If it's about this, don't. No, I'll talk to you for sure. No questions are inappropriate. I'm open to anything. If you disagree with me, I love having those conversations. And we're having a pub night next month. If you want to come and talk about it one-on-one that way, come on down and we'll chat about it. Have a great week, y'all.